Greetings, ladies and mendigants, and welcome to the complete version of the story, Children of the Gun, taken from the subreddit HFY. If you wish to support the author, there are links in the description. If you wish to support this channel, however, there are also links in the description. Now, onto the sci-fi. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Children of the Gun, Chapter 1 out of 14, written by Alt Cipher. The room was dim, choked with the smell of too many bodies from too many worlds. Hushed conversation slid through the darkness like the crashing surf of the long-distant beach. The bartender polished glasses to keep himself busy and dared not take his eyes off his clientele. Waitresses glided in and out in sparse pools of light randomly. The door was open and a few faint lights from the outside spilled into the bar. A tiglin stood there, a little more than a meter tall and over large eyes and peaked ears atop of its head. The scratchy gray fur that covered the tiglin's body reflected in the faint light available. The tiglin made her way to the bar and clambered up to the chair to peer over the edge. The bartender looked up while still cleaning his glasses. What'll you have? The bartender's voice was low and brisk. It was grated on the ears of all who heard it. I, uh, water? The tiglin's voice was high and thready. The bartender nodded and filled a small glass from a mixer gun behind the bar. He slid it across to the tiglin. More creds, the bartender said. Oh my, the tiglin replied. I had no idea a glass of water could be so much. She searched the small pouch she carried on her waist, finally retrieving the fee and laying it on the bar. Well, the bartender said, it ain't some backwater mud bull. Costs money here. He scooped up the money and dropped it into the till. Do you have a moment? The tiglin asked. I suppose, the bartender replied. I was, uh, I was told this is where to come to hire someone, she said. The tiglin stared at the polished wooden bar as she spoke. Depends on what kind of someone you're looking to hire, the bartender said. I need, well... I don't know exactly. I need a fighter, I suppose. Someone who can fight, the tiglin said, nodding to herself before looking back at the bartender. Lots of different kinds of fighting, the bartender said. You're looking for an army. We ain't the best place for it. No, not a whole army. We couldn't afford it. Just, uh, just a few fighters to help my people protect us. Maybe you should go see the feds, the bartender said. They got soldiers, and they like saving fuzzy little aliens. That's just it. I've already spoken to them, and they can't help me. Or they don't want to help me. I wasn't very clear on the details. But no matter. They will not be coming. They are leaving my people defenseless, the tiglin said. When I asked what I should do, they said come down here and ask. Ma'am, the bartender said, if you think four creds for a glass of water is steep, you can't afford any other people in this place. Oh, the tiglin said. She seemed to debate on the pastel and stared deep into her untouched glass of water. The dark pools in her eyes began to glisten with tears. The bartender sighed and said, you can ask them, though. The tiglin nodded and took a sip of her water. She climbed down from a barstool and toddled over to the table where three large beings. She cleared her throat and the largest looked down at her. He had a mean glare amongst a face full of scars. His pallid skin rippled with the undercurrent of dozens of muscles. 
Yeah, the alien said, glaring down at the Tiglin. Um, yes, uh, she said. I'm looking for fighters. You got money? Um, yes, we have money, the Tiglin said. How much? Well, I'd... I'd rather not get into it in public, but it's everything we have. What's the job? The Tiglin's face broke open in a broad smile, then eclipsed even her large eyes. Radara. We live on Radara. It's in the Haliwak sector. We're having some troubles with a number of Lepaks. Seventy-five plus expensive, the alien said. Seven... I'm sorry, what's that? Seventy-five thousand to travel out to your little crap hole of a world and kill those jerks that are bothering you, the alien said. Oh my, Tygdon said. I had no idea it would be so much. The alien turned his attention back to his tablemates and ignored the Tigland. She paused for a moment, hoping that he would turn back and that one of the other being seated at the table would notice her, but she seemed to have turned invisible to them. The Tiglin walked to the next table. Just as she opened her mouth to speak, the multi-armed robot turned to her and said, Sixty-five plus expenses. The Tiglin looked into the expressionless face and closed her mouth without saying anything and moved on. Two more tables and two more rejections later, she came to a small table at the rear of the bar. A fat man sat hunched over his drink. His greasy fingers stroked the outside of a sweaty glass. A hunk of oily hair hung over his forehead as he watched the Tiglin approach. You know, the fat man said, I've watched you get turned down by every merc in this bar and you just keep going. The Tiglin smiled a sad little smile. I have to, she said. My people need help and I've been sent to find it. Is that so? Well, you ain't got the money to afford even one merc and it sounds like you need a whole army. So... What kind of help do you think you'll be getting exactly? I, uh, I don't know, she said, but I must try. The Lepaks are terrible enemies and my people are in danger. I'll do everything I can to help them. Uh-huh, the fat man said. You heard how much the good mo costs. Why don't you tell me how much you got? We, uh, 14,300, she said, her head hanging low as she admitted it. Fourteen? The fat man laughed as she asked. Oh, man, I thought you were a little short. I didn't know you barely made a quarter. Yeah, for fourteen you might be able to pick up a decent gun or two, but no one to carry it. The Tiglin's shoulders slumped, with a tiny whimper escaping her. She shook her head left to right and let the tears flow. She said, what am I going to do? The fat man sat back at his seat and looked her up and down. Well, you know, there's other ways to pay the bull than just money. That Eiglin looked up and said, Like what? What do you got? We have a harvest coming up in three months, she said. The Pukalanadari makes a wonderful brew from the Wakala root. Several of our village ladies create the most wonderful rope works. Mikani Fulali plays with the Gushta beautifully. The fat man stared at her for a moment before answering, Vegetables, booze, and blankets aren't exactly what I had in mind, but maybe we can work something out, he said. Tell you what, why don't you give me the money you've got, so I'll see if I can help you out, and then we can work out the remainder later. He smiled, showed a mouth full of faintly yellowing teeth and an uneasy glint in his eyes. That would be wonderful, she said. I do not have the money here with me, but I can meet you at the docking bay tomorrow morning, and then we can head out to Radara. 
No can do, the fat man said. I'm not quite ready to head out just yet. I still have to stock up for the trip like that. Why don't we meet back here around noon tomorrow? You pay me, and then we can head out in a couple days. I really wouldn't feel right giving you the money until we're ready to leave. Everyone in my village was worried someone would try and take advantage of me, the tigerant said. You do have to be careful, but uh, I can't buy supplies I need without the money, and without the supplies I can't help your people, the fat man said. Tigerlin chewed on her lip, and she considered it. Half, she said. That's gonna limit what I can get. Might make it harder for me to win against these, uh, what do you call them, Luminoxes? Lepax. They're large. Don't really care, the fat man said. But I need the money if you want my help. I shall accompany you when you make your purchases, she said. I am not going to a store, he said. The types of materials I am going to need aren't exactly standard issue, and the people I buy them from don't like surprises or uninvited guests. Look, if you don't want to trust me, that's fine. I'll wait for an actual paying customer. Good luck finding someone to take the job. He turned back towards his drink. Tyglin said, No, wait, just... Uh, Okay, meet me at the Fulton Money Changes tomorrow morning at nine. I'll get you your money. I'll give you two days to get your supplies, and then we'll leave for Radara. Fulton's at nine. Got it, he said. My name is Alaria de Hotaka, she said. Call me Jimbo, the fat man said. Five days later, the tiny, angry Tiglin returned to the bar. She stormed her back and found the same fat man hunched over his table. When the hell were you? she demanded. Got busy, Jimbo said. Got, uh, we had a deal, mister. We were supposed to leave days ago. You took my money and then stood me up, and now you're back in this bar. Look, you seem like a nice enough kid, but you need to leave. I will not. You took my money, and we had a deal. That's right, he said, his tone becoming harsh, his face turning red. I took your money. Consider it a lesson and go home before you learn something more. Elaria Tahataka took on an involuntary step back. Her hand went to cover her throat without conscious direction. You took her money, a deep voice said from the table to the right. Stay out of this, Jimbo said. You took her money and made a deal. Seems like you should honor it. The voice belonged to a man with tired eyes and a scruffy beard. Trig, that doesn't concern you, Jimbo said. That's where we disagree, Trig said. He stood up and strolled over to Jimbo's table. Alaria Tahataka glanced around and noted that all the other conversation had died out and several eyes were trying hard not to be seen watching. We can talk about this outside if you'd rather, Trig said. Jumbo stared down into his drink. He kept his eyes away from Trick at all costs. Suppose, Jumbo said, I give her back half of it. That'd be awful nice of you, Trick said, giving her a discount on your services like that. Yeah, Jumbo said. It's settled then, Trick said. He'll meet you at the port. I'm sure there's a ship leaving soon. The next ship out of my sector is in eighteen days, the Tigerland said. Don't worry, Trick said. Alaria de Hataka. She said. Don't worry, Ellie, Trick said. I'll make sure he's there. In fact, I think I might just make sure he does the whole job. I'll see if I can scare up a ship. I'm staying at the hostel three towers down from here, Ellie said. I'll come and get you when we're ready. Shouldn't be more than a day or two. End of chapter.
Children of the Gun, Chapter 2 of 14, written by Alt Cipher. Clanging and crashing and cursing echoed around the Great Bay as pilots and mechanics tended their ships. Metal tools had made pitching pings when they hit the bare concrete floor. Hammers struck the more resistant parts loose and wrenches squealed bolts loose. The air was thick with the smell of sweat and grease and fuel and oil. Trick found the mid-sized ship crouched in the unremarkable alcove. He saw two humanoid feet sticking out from underneath it. Trigg squatted down and said, Lee, ain't you got this bucket fixed yet? Lee lifted her head from the dolly, her black hair spiraling out of the bandana she tied around it. Fixed? Hell, this is upgrading. Got a new uptake manifold that's supposed to put 30% more efficient, she said. Slide out of there. I got a job. Well, more of a favor, I suppose, Trigg said. Lee wheeled her dolly out from under the ship and stood up, her head not quite making it to Trigg's chin. A favor? Your favors always end up costing me money, she said. Jumbo tried to scam a Tiglin, and I'm going to ride shotgun with him to make sure he holds up his end of the deal, Trigg said. What's the pay? None, Trigg said. Of course it is, Lee said. See, let me guess, you need a ride somewhere. And then some. Might need a backup on the job, Trick said. This just gets better and better, Lee said. You know, I'll have to ask Cal, right? How is Callahan? Same as ever, Lee said. You know he'd rather take a bullet to the head than talk about what's bothering him. She smiled when she spoke of Cal. So why are you so set on doing a no-fee job? Balcor, Trick said. As soon as the word was out of his mouth, Lee's smile evaporated like an early morning drew in the sunlight. That was two years ago, Lee said, her voice flat and with no inflection or inflection. You can't tell me you've had a decent night's sleep in those two years, Trick said. No, Lee said. I can't. She turned back to the ship and popped open the access panel, making herself busy with the wires and circuits inside. These people need help, Lee, Trick said. Ellie, the Tiglin that came looking for help, she, uh, she doesn't know what she's getting into. I have a feeling none of her people do. They've got trouble with some kind of species I've never heard of. Lepax, I think. They need help. Maybe. Maybe we can make up for what we did. Lee jerked the wires around inside the open panel and slammed the inner access panel closed. We can't make up for what we did. What's done is done. Fine, Trick said. We can't make up for it, but maybe we can balance the ledger. Lee stopped what she was doing, and her head sank. Her arms were still up in the access panel, and her head hung between the goalposts of her arms. I can't, Trick. I can't go through that again. You think you can keep living like this? Lee spun in. Damn it, Trig. I know I was doing fine until you showed up. You appear out of nowhere with no warning and try to sell me on redemption. I was just starting to accept it. He did horrible things, and I was just starting to learn how to live with it. What's going on? A man walked up to them and looked from Trig to Lee. Morning, Cal, Trig said. Trig has a job for us, Lee said. No pay, unknown enemies, rescue some cuddly little aliens. He seems to think it'll balance the scales from Balcor. She tossed down her tools and stormed off towards the boarding ramp. Cal turned to Trig. She still has nightmares, you know, he said. Not much as she used to, but she still wakes up screaming and shaking once a week or so. I'm sorry, Trigg said. 
but I think this job might help her clear her conscience. I'll talk to her, Carl said. Come back tomorrow morning and we'll see what we can do. Thanks, Carl, Driggs said. You should know that I'm going to ask Diego, too. Seems like he's got much right to forgiveness as any of us. Trigg shook Carl's hand and headed off. An hour later, Trigg knocked on a dingy door, and he kept glancing over his shoulder into the grimy, dim alley that he'd had to traverse to make it here. The vagrant at the other end of the alley stared at him in a way that made him uneasy. The door opened, and on the other side was a squat man with a fat gun. It took the man a moment to recognize him, but then he said, Oh, it's you. The man lowered the gun and walked away from the door, but left it open for Trigg. Trigg walked into the hovel and saw Disha stacked in the sink, books and boxes heaped over every flat surface, unknown stains dotting the worn carpet, and the faint smell of animal waste floating on the air. He steeled himself as he entered, closing the door behind him. How are you doing, Diego? Trigg asked, looking at the disaster that was Diego's apartment. I'm living, Diego said, flopping down into the uncluttered chair. The lumps of the chair made it clear that it was his favorite and only place to sit. He made no move to clear an area for Trigg. Are you? Trigg said. I've got a job and thought you might be interested. What kind of job? A tigerland wandered into Molly's place and Jimbo tried to scam her. Took her money, but had no plans on carrying it out. I'm going to go along and make sure he fulfills the contract. Thought you might want to get out of the house for a bit. Diego looked around the apartment. I'm retired, he said. Trigg squatted down on his haunches and stared into Diego's eyes. We got a chance to do something good this time, D. You aren't retired. You're depressed. Balka hurt us all. Come with me. I've talked to Lee and Cowell. How did he take it? About as good as you'd expect, Trick said. Don't know what we're going up against, and I need you covering my back on this one. Diego said, I'm broken down old man now, Trig. I got no business being out on a job and certainly no business covering a man's back. I'm sure you can find a young gun to do the job. Diego, you're about the only man I've ever really trusted. If I was looking for a shooter, I can hire them by the dozen. But I'm looking for a man that won't give me calls to worry about waking up with my throat slit. Diego looked down at his hands. He picked dirt from one of his fingernails. Trig, I ain't shot a gun in over a year. I don't know if I can anymore. You won't have a cause to worry about me slitting your throat, but you might have to cause to worry that I won't get the job when the time comes. D, even if that's true, even if you never fire a shot, you're still my friend, and I want you with me, Trigg said. He looked around the apartment and said, Besides, doesn't look like you'll miss much while you're gone. No, I suppose I won't, Diego said. He looked up from his hands. Does this mean that you'll come with me? How, Trigg? I ain't got that many friends, even less from the old days, so I guess when the one shows up asking for my help, I got auntie's call. I appreciate that, D, Trigg said. I'll come pick you up tomorrow morning. We'll have breakfast and then go see Carl and Lee. Make sure you pack all your gear. We don't want Beatrice getting lonely. Diego shook his head and said, I don't know why I still listen to you. Because you want to hope again, Trigg said. Diego smiled, faintly, but a smile nonetheless. Is that what it is? I thought I was just too damn dumb to say no. 
He stuck his hand out, and Trig shook it. Children of the Gun, Chapter 3 of 8 Written by Alt Cipher You know, Diego said, I've spent half my life on ships going from one hull hole to another, but I've never felt comfortable knowing that on the other side of this hull was an endless pit of hyperspace that isn't supposed to exist. He placed his hand on the outer wall of the ship. You think too much, Cal said. He wiped down the gun parts laid out on the table in front of him. He inspected each piece carefully and examined them for any signs of damage or wear. The table gently rattled as the ship wove its way between the stars. I suppose, Diego said. He had his sidearm disassembled in front of him on the table, his actions a mirror of Cal's as they both cleaned their weapons. I wish I could turn it off like you. Cal smiled as he laid down a heavy metal component on the dull thud. You should talk to Lee. She'll doubt that I ever turn my brain on. Is she over it? Cal's smile died on his lips. No. Not really. For months afterwards, she, uh... It was like every time I looked in her eyes, all I saw was a stranger. At least now I can tell that there's a person behind the eyes. She's not just running on autopilot anymore. I think it broke me, Diego said, but destroyed her. It destroyed all of us, Carl said. He began reassembling the weapon with the care of a lioness tending to a cub. Each piece slid home almost silently, each component fitted into its exact position. I heard you guys took up cargo runs, Diego said. A few, yeah, Cal said. Even though Lee was going through some stuff, we still had bills to pay. We stuck with bed space, though. We wouldn't even listen to a job that we'd have to go outside. I know how she feels, Diego said. What about you? What have you been up to? Nothing. I had a little savings at my pension. I only have one real set of skills, and I wasn't looking to use them, Diego said, as he reassembled his own weapon as well. So why'd you come back? Trig, Diego said. He asked me, and, well, I'm here. He give you the same speech about balancing the ledger. Diego smiled. Yeah, he did. I've missed this. Not this, the job. But the people, I haven't been able to face anyone in forever. Guess I forgot what it was like to have someone to talk to. Someone who knows what it's like. Trigg flipped through the data displays in a small alcove that was given a grandiose name of Situation Room. There was barely enough space for three grown humans in here, and he always felt the name was more a marketing ploy on the ship's designers than an actual usable room. Even being in there made his blood pressure rise because he couldn't stop thinking about the name. Star charts coasted across the screens, and he heard the door open behind him and soft footfalls make their way to him. Good afternoon, Trig, Eddie said. Afternoon, Eddie. What's up? I was unable to find our captain. Can you tell me how much longer we've got in this trip? About a week and a half. We're only halfway, Trig said. He cycled back through the star charts and brought up their current course. A bright green dot popped on existence and a solid blue line traced its way with a blinking purple dot. The line only reached about halfway between the green and purple dots. Ah, Eddie said. I see, I just, um, the trip from my world seemed much shorter. It probably was. Those big liners can make much better time than this ship, but we were able to get started earlier, so we should arrive long before the commercial transport would have. I, uh, 
I worry for my people. It seems I have been gone forever, and I fear of what we will find when I return. Lapex are a terrible enemy. Trig sat back in his chair and turned to Eddie. What can you tell me about them? We can't find anything in our databases about them, and I don't like going in blind. I understand. Unfortunately, there's little I can add. We do not know from where they came from, and we do not understand why they are attacking us. We had tried communicating with them, but, uh, well, I came to find you. I see. Anything else? Anything may end up being the thing between winning and losing, Triggs said. Eddie thought for a moment and said, The Lepaks are nightmares made real. They are fear. Fear. Fear on two legs. We are a peaceful race and have little in the way of weapons, but we did have was a useless. What does that mean, useless? Arrows would not pierce their hide. They shrugged off our stunners with our paws. One village tried to set a trap with fording logs, but the Lepax troops walked away with minimal scratches and bruises. We simply were not equipped to fight them. How big are they? Well, you have to understand that most species seem like giants to us. Humans are twice our size. The Lepax are larger than humans, it seems. I would guess that they are maybe three times our size. It's difficult to say, Hetty said. Trig nodded as she spoke. He said, and their weapons, what are those like? We have no knowledge of such a thing. The one weapon I saw was a long, dark tube with handles hanging off of it. It seemed small in the hands, but I would guess that it would reach up my shoulder or just past your waist. When they fired those weapons, there was a terrible screeching noise like a wallaringa bird in attack. A flash of light followed and then death, Hetty said. A flash of light. What color was it? Orange, I suppose. Maybe a little yellow, Eddie said. Trigg turned back to the console and called up a number of weapon catalogues. He scrolled through some weapon catalogues until he came across a likely candidate. Is this what they look like? Eddie peered at the display. She cocked her head as she considered it. Maybe, she said. Yes, that that would could very much be a match. But you must remember I only saw once and then briefly. That's been a big help. Trick said. If they're using Prixum blasters, then we should be able to go up with the defense. Hetty's face lit up hearing this. Really? You think you, you might be able to? I'd like to hope so, Trick said. You've given hope to me and my people. I pray you find your own as well, Hetty said. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, chapter 4 out of 14. Written by Alt Cipher. Dust leapt up and swirled around the ship as it settled down on the broad, flat plains. Metal popped and creaked as it cooled down in the early morning sunlight. Gases vented from the underbelly now that the ship was no longer in space. A door whooshed open and two small metal steps extended. Eddie stood at the door and looked out on the world of a berth with wondering eyes. Trigg stood behind her. Scanners didn't show any hostiles in the area, Trigg said. How far are we from your village? Not far, maybe, Eddie said, glancing around to get her bearings. Maybe half a day's journey, or less? She stepped out out of the ship and Trigg followed. Diego and Jimbo were right behind, loading down the heavy packs. They felt the dirt compress under their thick-soled boots as they stepped onto the new world. D, you and Jumbo set up camp. 
I'm going to go with Eddie and meet the locals, Trix said. What about Lee and Cal, Jimbo said. What about him? They got the ship, then they know their jobs, Trix said. I'll be back for dinner. Ellie and Trig headed off to the trees, huddled in the distance. Why does he get to go into town while we are pitching the tents? Jimbo asked. Diego turned and looked at him. I'm here because I'm not friendly with the customers. You're here because you're an asshole. Ellie led Trig through the woods. The undergrowth became denser and more tangled the further in they went. Ellie was making better time than Trig, who would find himself wrapped up in the creeping vine or in danger of turning an ankle over an exposed root every other step. How the hell could the Lepax make it to your village through all of this? Trig asked. They are a terrible enemy, Ellie said, but they have not yet made it to our village. At least, they hadn't when I left. The few survivors who took in from the other villagers told of how the Lepax would tear down the bushes and uproot the trees to get to the village. They told stories of thinking the whole world was crashing down upon their heads. Yeah, I could see that, Trick said, after a solid half an hour of walking through the dense foliage, creating his path. Trig stepped into a clearing and saw Ellie looking up and smiling. We're here, Ellie said. Trick looked up and a dozen small homes woven throughout the connecting trees. He caught sight now and then of Ellie's people climbing and walking and running through the village far above his head. The forest floor beneath the village was cleared of all undergrowth and there was only a soft carpet of dead leaves and pine needles. At the very edge of hearing, Trick thought he could hear out conversations. A small crowd wandered out of the trees. One of the fuzzy aliens with a graying fur stepped forward and said, Laria Dohotaka, you return. Eddie smiled and rushed to him. She threw her arms around his neck and cried into his shoulder. She said, Yes, Papa, I'm home. She let out a string of trills and whistles that was the Tyclan's native language. The rest of the Tyclans watched the reunion. After a few moments, Eddie pulled back and pointed to Trigg. I've brought help, she said. This is Trigg. He has a team with him, and they will save us from the Lepax. Whoa, Trigg said. We'll see what we can do about it, but I don't want to get your hopes up. The old Tiglin hobbled forward and stood in front of Trigg, who knelt down to look at him in the eye. We respect you, he said, for trying. Thank you, sir, Trigg said. Your people should prepare to evacuate just the same. It's better to be prepared. Wise, the old man said. He turned to Eddie and spoke a meandering tune of Tiglin. Papa never learned much human tongue, Eddie said. He wants you to know that although we are not fighters, we are proud people. He says we'll only run as a last resort and that we are depending on your team to succeed. Drake looked from Eddie to her father and back. Does he understand the danger? That we are not an army. We could save the people but still lose their home. Eddie translated into a singing language, and a father looked to Trigg and gave a single curt nod downwards. Then he turned and led the crowd back towards the village. That evening, the Tigland village hosted the human mercenaries at a feast. The torches of the perimeter of the village went liquid golden hue to the scene. The Tiglands brought our plates heaped with vegetables and sauces. The humans, however, passed on the trays of steamed insects that passed from hand to hand. Jimbo sat surrounded by Tiglins laughing and eating and drinking. He looked around at the fur-covered aliens and saw hope in their faces and felt ashamed. He stared down at his plate of greens and found his appetite deserting him. 
Diego watched Jimbo pick at his food. The village party was part of the job Diego suffered through quietly, but he took solace knowing that Jimbo was suffering too. The night wore on as the smoke and laughter climbed up into the cool night air. Trig watched how the feast and the felt sadness at what was sure to come. End of chapter Children of the Gun, Chapter 5 of 14, written by Alt Cipher. Are you sure the outer line is going to hold? Trig asked. The map was spread out on the ground in front of him. Jimbo peered at the spot where Trig was pointing. That's a choke point, Jimbo said. The hills on either side will funnel them through here. We won't need to cover a lot of area. I suppose that'll have... Uh, Trig was cut short by the creaking, growling sound coming from the woods around them. The Tyglin's ears perked up, and they all stood staring into the forest. A great, crashing sound erupted from the greenery around them, and stampede of forest animals punched through the village. Trig and Jimbo both drove behind the nearest tree and waited for the herd to pass. The sounds of falling trees and splintered lumber grew closer every moment. Hey, we got incoming. Get up here and tell me what you see. Everyone else, lock and load. Trick shouted into his radio and he heard the clamor building behind him. The Tiglans scampered up the tree trunks and into their houses. Trig watched them as they ran straight up the trees instead of away from the danger. Damn it, Trig yelled. He grabbed Jimbo by the collar and shouted to be heard. Get as many away as you can. I'll see what I can stall, whatever that is. Jimbo nodded and ran off. Trig pulled his side arm and eased around the tree he was hiding behind. He kept his body and most of his head concealed, but did look out far enough to see what was happening. A hundred meters away or more, Trig saw great white trees crashing into the ground, but it was disorganized. One tree would crash off from the left, and the other two would crash to the right, then a single tree right of the center, then three from the left center. Trig thought there would have been a single lane being cleared for the invasion, but it appeared to be a haphazard mob making whatever progress they could. Looking closer, Trig saw figures moving in the trees. With the heavy undergrowth, it was difficult to tell where they were or what they looked like. Trig stepped back behind the tree and thought for a moment. When he sprinted off to the left, clearing the village boundaries in only a few minutes, he caught a few panicked squeals from high above him as the Tiglins realized what was happening. Trig circled wide around the approaching enemy. He kept the village more or less in sight as he made his way to the enemy's flank. He kept low and moved as quickly as possible. Several heart-pounding minutes later, Trig was close enough to see what was pushing down the trees. Each of the creatures stood at least three meters tall, with a couple appearing on top of over four meters. Their skin was thick gray hide that lightly sparked in the intermittent light coming through the forest canopy. Their heads were bulbous atop their bodies with long pointed snouts sticking out front. At the end of the snout was a mass of tentacles that seemed to always be in motion. The black eye spoke some primitive part of Trig's brain where it set off alarms screaming of predators coming from beyond the firelight to eat him. The creature's bodies rippled with muscle. Even as Trig watched, the beasts could strain and push a tree trunk only for it to surrender with a deafening crash a minute later. Trig saw snapping branches glance off through the hides and elicit no reaction from the creatures. Occasionally, one of the beasts would turn to another, and Trick could smash-make out the garbled grunting sound. 
The two would talk for a moment and then moved on about their business. For all their damage to the forest, they were taking their time. The trees would crash with a mighty thud, and then the creatures would look over at their handiwork and shout to one another in a bragging fashion. There were at least a dozen of the massive monsters working on unleashing the chaos in the forest. Trigg kept his head down, and he hid behind the trees and bushes to stay out of sight. As he was watching the beasts knock over the trees, he heard a low snorting sound from behind him. He wheeled around, bringing his gun up as he turned, and found himself face to chest with one of the enemies. The creature towered over Trigg, blocking the sky from his view. Trigg looked up at the monster's face, well over a meter above his head, its tentacles twitching in the faint forest daylight. Trigg tightened his grip on his gun and started pulling the trigger on a half a heartbeat. In the blink of an eye, Trigg put three shots in the center of the monster. The beast looked down at where the energy bolts impacted with a thick gray hide. Trigg followed his gaze and saw three smudges where the blasts had splashed harmlessly against the creature. Trigg said, Crap! as he raised his weapon and launched another full side, but the monster's tentacles shook violently and Trigg didn't pull the trigger. Trigg found him arms and hands not obeying his orders. He felt his gaze pulled upwards and found himself gazing into the monster's black eyes. As much as Trigg fought, he could not pull his gaze away from the face that enthralled him. Distantly, he felt his arms drop to his sides, and he almost imagined he heard his gun make a quiet whoomp sound as it hit the forest floor. Trigg felt like he was falling into infinity. His body was far beyond his mind became untethered, becoming weightless and ephemeral. His vision collapsed down as though through a tunnel and a battlefield, and the forest became nothing more than a pinprick of light. Trigg jerked himself awake. He looked around, trying to find the source of his anxiety. He saw he was on a tall hillside along a narrow path, with half a dozen weary and beaten people following him. He looked down the hill across the long, narrow valley and saw a field of fire. The dark night sky overhead drank up the light from the fires below. Then orange ribbons crept along the homes and the fields in the valley. Sparks leapt upwards, and Trigg could hear a wild rush of air being pulled into the fires, consuming everything below him. Why are we stopping? A voice called from behind Trigg. He turned to see a soot-smeared face, reflecting dully in the firelight. Deacon, Trigg asked. He felt an unword and uncertain. But how are you? This can't be. Trigg... We gotta move, Deacon said. We got hostiles moving in. Trigg looked back down the path and saw the lights on top of the enemy's weapons bouncing along. He looked back at Deacon and shook his head. Trigg said, Balcor, I'm back in Balcor. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, chapter 6 of 14. Written by Alt Cipher. The small group following Trigg ducked behind him when he slipped into the small cave hidden near the crest of the hill. They were all panting heavily and kept a keen eye on the entrance. What the hell's going on? Trigg said. What are you talking about? Diggin replied. The Gadal fleet invaded and we got our rears kicked. Ring a bell? What? Yes, I know that, but this... this was two years ago. I'm... Uh, I'm not here. I'm fighting Lepax and Radara. Ha ha! 
Deacon said, moving closer in a tight space. He kept his body between Trigg and the rest of the refugees. Man, Trigg, you sure do know how to keep the mood light, he said, a bit louder than strictly necessary. He lowered his voice and said, Are you trying to get us killed? These people trusted you to get them out, and here you are now acting like you've lost your freaking mind. Can you keep your crap together until we get out of this? Because if you can't, the best decision left for me is to toss you back down the path and slow down the gatel looking for us. Deacon's words came fast and vicious. Trigg looked over Deacon's shoulder at the small family that had followed him out of the valley. A mother, a teenage son, twin daughters, and a toddler in the mother's arms. They swallowed a lump in his throat. Deacon, Trigg said, trying to keep his voice as quiet as possible. I, uh... I want you to hit me. Slap me in the face. You sure? You're going with the crazy thing, then? No. Seriously, slap me. Slap the crap out of me, Triggs said. Deacon searched Triggs' eyes for any sign of madness or a joke, but found nothing save honesty. Deacon nodded, and once, and cracked Tig across the face with a swift backhand. Triggs' head snapped back at the side and left a crack in Deacon's hand against the face echoed through the cave. Trigg howled his head to the side for a moment and looked back at Deacon. His eyes were unfocused and jumped from place to place. Well, Trigg said, this is odd. The hell are you talking about? Deacon said. I know this is completely crazy, but this is a memory for me. This happened two years ago. Balco was um, awful. It was awful. It tore us apart. Our failure here was so brutal that we never really recovered, Trigg said. You don't think this is real? Deacon's face was falling with shock and disappointment and fear and a thousand other emotions. Itch, vying to be the one in control. No, Trigg said, or not like you mean. This, this is a memory. But it's not. When you slapped me, it hurt. The first time I went through Balakor, none of this happened. This conversation never happened and you never slapped me. So whatever this is, it is something that we don't have a word for. Maybe, like a lucid dreaming, but for a memories, Trigg said. Deacon dropped his hands and shook it before he looked back up. Trigg, if you can't handle this, just say so. No one is going to think any less of you. God knows you've done more here than anyone could have expected. Just say the word if you need help. But you don't get to make up crazy stories, he said. Deacon, Trigg said, I swear to you that everything I just told you is the God's honest truth. I don't know what's happening here, but I think I can prove it. How? Before my first time here, we hid in this cave for a few hours. A patrol found us about half an hour before dawn. Two Gattel scouts, blue checker pattern squad. We never did find out what their company colors meant. If that happens, then we know I'm not just losing my mind. Deacon thought for a moment and then turned to the family they were escorting. Get some sleep, if you can, he said. We rest for you for a while, he turned back to Trigg, and allowed enough for everyone else to hear, at least until morning. They slept in shifts, with Trigg watching first, Deacon wanting to be sure that if Trigg's prediction came true, that nothing Trigg had done caused it to happen. The sky was just beginning to lighten as Deacon sat near the edge of the cave. He dared not stick out his head any further for fear of alerting the enemy to their hideout. Trigg and the refugee family slept behind him, deeper in the cave. Deacon calmed his breathing to listen for any sounds of an approaching enemy. 
As he, counting the snores of people behind him, Deacon heard the soft footfalls of a pair of people making their way along the hillside path. He tightened his grip on his rifle and leaned forward to see if he could locate them before they got too close. Deacon could just make out the movements in the pre-dawn light, but could not distinguish anything more than a rough guess of the size, with no hope of telling a human from a guitar. Deacon watched the ships move closer for a bit, and estimated that he would have several minutes if they picked their way around the gently weaving path, and made sure that they would not make too much noise. He slipped back in the cave as quickly as he could without making any undue racket. He placed his hand over Trigg's mouth and shook him awake. Trigg's eyes snapped open almost immediately, and his hand was at his gun instantly. Trigg could make out Deacon leaning over him and saw Deacon hold his finger to his lips. Deacon slipped his hand away from Trigg's mouth and jerked his head towards the cave entrance. Trigg nodded, and Deacon stepped back. Trigg rolled over and crawled to the mouth of the cave and joined Deacon. Deacon pointed down the slope and Trigg could make out the two shapes moving closer with each passing moment. Trigg looked at Deacon and his face seemed to say, I told you so. Deacon nodded his head but then pointed back to the shapes coming up the hill. Trigg nodded. Both men crouched down and brought their rifles to bear. Trigg held up a hand, motioning for Deacon to hold his fire. Trigg then signaled then let the enemy get closer and then Trigg would take the one on the left and Deacon would take the one on their right. Deacon nodded his understanding. As the two fighters came closer and the sky became lighter, Trigg and Deacon could both make out the crested uniforms of the Catal. The scouts were just as Trigg had prophesied. Trigg was both excited and concerned that he was right, but even more concerned was that this was not how this happened the first time around. The Catal were making good progress up the path. Trigg and Deacon kept their respective targets in their sights the whole time. When the enemy was no more than a dozen steps away, Trigg signaled for Deacon to be ready to fire. Deacon tightened his grip on his rifle and watched for Trigg's shot out of the corner of his eye. As the guitar rounded the last minor curve, putting them no more than five or six steps away from where they would start to notice the cave opening, Trigg opened fire. Half a heartbeat later, Deacon's shot erupted from the front of his rifle as well. Each man only fired once, and each man claimed one dead guitar. The noise woke up the civilians behind them, but they kept their eyes open for any more guitar coming up the path. After a few minutes, no more enemies approached, and Trick turned to face the civilians. Get up and get ready to move, he said. The mother was awake and nodded. She began waking her brood and getting them ready to travel. What the hell was that? Deacon asked as the civilians were walking. How the hell did you know the two scouts? He kept his voice low in case any other enemies happened by and out of habit. The first time I was here, Trigg said, they caught us still half asleep. I was the guard for early morning shift that time. I think I'd half dozed off and they got too close. They winged me, but they killed you. The oldest kid grabbed up my rifle and then put a shot right through the middle of him, too. I finally managed to get them both down. By then, they had already radioed in our position. I was wounded and escorting her mother and her kids. I was the only one to make it to the LZ. Jesus, Deacon said. So you're telling me that you've been here before and this crappy cave is where I bought the farm? More or less, Trigg said. I thought this was just a memory, that these jerk aliens I'm fighting were making me relive my worst memory of my life. But in my memory, 
You're dead. I'm still not convinced this is real, and I'm not hallucinating. But at least I know it's not on rails. You mean the Gatel? What? They are soul aliens. You mean the Gatel? No, Jake said. The Lapax. The Gatel are in my past. I've already fought them here on Balcor. The Lapax are in my present. I'm fighting them on Radara. Are you sure you didn't maybe hit your head on every rock on this planet? Maybe you just like a ton of closed dead trauma and spontaneously come down with a terminal case of batshit crazy. Yeah, it does sound a bit insane, Trigg said. Believe me, I know. I'm telling you the truth as best I know it. I've also never hallucinated before, so I don't know what it feels like. But this, this feels real to me as anything I've ever known. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, Chapter 7, written by Holt Cipher. Lee pulled the ship around in a tight circle and shouted into the radio, Cal, ground support at 3-5. Got it, Cal said, as he felt the crash webbing pull him as Lee maneuvered the ship. He hung out of the open door with his rifle in his arms. The wind tore at him, trying to pry him free from the ship as they flew over the battlefield. He looked down into the forest as the trees collapsed around the village. Now and then he would catch sight of a lapax. Damn, they're near impossible to see through that canopy, Carl said through his radio. We have positions on friendlies. No, Lee said. They weren't geared up when the attack came, so no IFF. Diego, Carl shouted into the radio. Canopy too thick to see hostiles. Friendlies not located. You'll have to do a ground recon. We'll land and join up. Understood, Diego said into the radio. He turned to Jumbo and said, Looks like we're doing this the hard way. Is the village evacuated? Mostly, Jimbo said, I think. Well, that'll have to be good enough, Diego said. You hold the line here and meet Carl and Lee when they get you. I'm going to go see if I can convince these jerks we're not worth the trouble. Jimbo nodded, and Diego walked off into the forest, darting from tree to tree. Diego heard Jimbo start setting up what defenses he could as Diego dove deeper into the greenery. Diego saw a giant Lapaxes knocking over trees. They were taking their time and congratulating each other as they went. Diego felt his teeth grind together. This attack was meant to strike fear in the hearts of their opponents, and that was what set Diego's teeth on edge. He felt that the personal slight against his professionalism. His opinion of the Lapax turned upside down in an instant. They went from honorable enemies who he would meet in the field of battle to bullies and thugs who deserved no more than an executioner's bullet. Diego felt his heart pounding against his head, and every muscle in his body became tense. If they wished to use fear as a weapon, Diego thought, then we shall meet them on the field of our choosing. Diego stepped out from behind a tree in plain sight of a number of Lapaxes. His sudden appearance seemed to startle them, but only for a moment. However, the grenade he threw after the towering monster served as a more serious commentary. He lobbed the small orb into the middle of the three of the Lapaxes. They reflexively turned away just as the grenade hit the earth between them. Nothing happened. The three Lapaxes turned to look at the dud grenade lying in the dirt as Diego's first volley of shots tore at them. Diego had his rifle up to his shoulder and unleashed a fully automatic spray of energy bolts at the Lapaxes. Within a few seconds, he had depleted his first power pack, but the Lapaxes were still standing. 
With a speed that comes from thousands of hours of practice, Diego dropped the empty power pack from his weapon and had a second fully charged pack in place and resumed his barrage against the aliens. The second power pack was empty and the third one took its place almost immediately. The Lepaxes were forced down to their knees. With each shot Diego took, they moved closer and closer to the enemy, a trail of spent power packs reaching back to where he had started the attack. He spelt the rifle beginning to overheat in his hands, and he knew that he'd have to switch tactics soon. The Lepaxes were starting to wear out, and their shiny hides were starting to show more scorch marks and damage. They were not moving as much as they were before. Diego's unrelenting barrage was taking its toll. Finally, Diego reached for another power pack and found none. He had been counting them as he consumed them, but held out some shred of hope that he had been off by one or two. Without hesitation, Diego tossed the rifle at the ground and drew his handgun. As it cleared the holster, Diego briefly thought of a few times Trigg had teased him over carrying such a large weapon to complement his rifle, and was now glad that he'd never listened to Trigg's advice to downsize. Diego's handgun was out and up in less than a heartbeat. He cycled through three lapaxes, one shot at the head of each as quickly as Diego could pull the trigger. With each shot, Diego took a step closer to the now rapidly falling Lepaxes. He reloaded them and emptied his handgun twice before he made it to the Lepaxes. The enemies were on the ground, but still breathing. An arm would flail now and then, or a leg would randomly kick out and here and there. The monsters were on their backs, but not dead yet. Diego had never met a species that could take such a beating. He imagined we was beginning to respect them, but clamped down that feeling before it became real. Diego reached behind his back and drew out his combat knife and walked up to the first Lepax. His tentacles were twitching and its eyes rolled in its head as it tried to focus on Diego. He knelt beside it as the beast raised an arm to defend itself, but Diego swiped it away easily. Diego stabbed the knife downwards into the monster's eye, leaning his entire body weight into it. The beast let out a terrible scream and was then silent forever. Diego stood up and wiped the gore from his knife before strolling over to the next Lepax. The beast's head was canted back on the odd angle, so Diego took the knife and made a deep slash across the monster's throat. The forest floor was stained with dark with the creature's blood. The final back struggled more on the other two had. Now that it had seen Diego in action, it tried to roll itself over and begin crawling away, but it was too wounded to escape. Diego trotted up behind the monster and dropped to a knee into a small of its back. The monster let out a garbled yell and tried to twist around to get at Diego, but he was ready. Diego plunged the knife deep into the center of the beast's back. He felt the knife scrape against the several bones as he drove it in. As soon as the hilt hit the monster's back, Diego had the knife back out and drove it back into the monster's back again. Again and again. Diego's blade gored the monster until it lay lifeless and limp under him. Diego stood up, covered in alien blood and fluids. He looked around at the devastation surrounding him. Some distant part of his mind knew that he should regroup with the others, but the louder part of his mind was hungry for more blood. He wanted to see the forest blooded with the innards of his enemy and feel the life leak out of them as he watched. 
Back at the village, Jimbo watched the Lapaxes getting closer and closer. The last tree crashed down and had nearly made its way into the village. He crouched behind a makeshift barricade of old trees at the edge of the village. Jimbo, Cal said through the approach, what's the situation? Lee and Cal knelt down beside Jimbo and peered out into the forest. Drake's missing, Diego's out there being Diego, and the enemy's almost here, Jimbo said. This should be fun, Cal said. I'm heading up, you two see if you can hold them off. Cal turned and started climbing the tree up to the Tigland village above them. Is he going to be much use up there? Jimbo asked. He's the best sniper I've ever seen, Lee said. That's why I married him. Really? No, Lee said. Of course not. But he is a hell of a shot. Jimbo heard a thunder crack of Cal's rifle just above his head. It was silent for a moment, then two more shots rang out, one after the other. These bastards don't go down easy, Cal said over the radio. We need Trigg and Diego back and then firebomb the whole damn place. We'll see what we can do, Lee said. She turned to Jimbo and said, Which way did Trigg go? End of chapter Children of the Gun, Chapter 8, written by Old Cipher Trigg half slid down the hillock, gravel and dirt following him in a minute avalanche. Deacon and the civilians were crouched at the bottom amongst the small crops of trees. The sky above was grey, the land below was damp, and the day, if it could be called such, had such a muffled feel about it. Two squads patrolling, Trigg said, just like last time. And how did it end last time? Deacon asked. I told you, I was the only one to make it off this planet, Trigg said. These guys weren't slouches. We should circle wide. That'll cost us time, Deacon said. Plus, we won't have the benefit of your foresight, so who knows what we'd run into out there. Trigg glanced back at the hill for a moment. No, he said. We wouldn't. He looked back at Deacon. Any thoughts? Can we call in an airstrike, have them clear away for us? Then we'd risk calling more attention to ourselves, Trigg said. Okay, how about the old number seven? Trigg stared at Deacon. Kind of risky, but I guess we don't have much of a choice. An hour later, smoke drifted the thin tendrils across the field. Trigg and Deacon looked down at the bodies scattered across the expanse. The civilian family crept out from behind the hills and joined the two fighters. What now? the mother asked. Now we figure out how to get across the field without being spotted, Trick said. He led the group over to a small hill and across the field. How's this compared to the first go-around? Deacon asked. He kept his head swiveling to watch for enemies. You're all dead by now, Trick said. Pop smoke just up here and got picked up a few minutes later. Did you get a confirmation on the shelter? Yeah, a few minutes ago, Deacon said. They're locked on over IFF. Touchdown imminent. Trigg looked around the scarred and burnished landscape around him. He could hear the sounds of the battle and explosions off in the distance. The smell of burned flesh and extended ordnance chocked the air and made his eyes water. Wish I could have helped Lee, Trigg said. What's that? Deacon said. This whole thing turned into a crap show, Trigg said. Most of us survived that were, um, well, no one really came home from Balka, but Lee, she got the worst of it, I think. But you saved us, Deacon said. Besides, I thought you were still thinking this is a dream or something. I don't know, Trigg said. The shuttle screamed out of the sky and made a hard landing fifty meters from the small group. 
Drake and Deacon screamed for the civilians to run. They reached pickup on the smaller children and ran until the lungs felt like they would burst. As Drake was within a dozen steps of the shuttle, a movement in the tree caught his eyes. Without thinking, Drake dropped and rolled, protecting the child he was carrying. Deacon had made it to the shuttle and tossed the child that he was carrying inside and turned just in time to see Trig drop to the ground. Deacon whipped his rifle up and started scanning. Moments later, energy blast chewed up the ground near Trig. Deacon followed the path back to the aliens and the tree line some distance away. Looking through his scope, Deacon zeroed in on the enemy and put them down with a handful of shots. Deacon ran over to Trigg and helped him up. Deacon took the child and headed for the shuttle. Trigg finished pulling himself to his feet and stumbled into the waiting shuttle. As soon as his feet cleared the ramp, the shuttle snapped closed like a great starving metal beast. Trigg collapsed backwards on the deck and felt his chest heaving, drawing in filtered air as fast as his body could process it. He lay there, staring at the roof, hearing the soft cries of the family that still lived the feeding of the gentle vibrations on the deck beneath him. For a long moment, Trigg let go of his concerns and what was real and what was imagined and tried to just be in the moment. He let his mind disengage and force his emotions at two arm's length. But his repose brought on guilt, so Trigg rolled over and pulled himself to his feet. He saw the civilian family hugging each other and crying. He saw Deacon leaning back against the bulkhead with eyes closed, as he watched the panic curve away from the shuttle through the porthole, Trigg felt empty inside. He remembered watching Deacon's head erupt from an enemy shot. He remembered seeing an enemy destroy the family in a rain of energy bolts. But he also remembered walking out of there with them. Trigg felt his mind try and rationalize the two distinct memories that could not both be true. His consciousness felt like it was putting itself apart with a dual timeline sport for supremacy. His vision became blurry and he felt himself sag against the bulkhead to slide to the floor. End of chapter Children of the Gun, Chapter 9, written by Holt Cipher Diego saw Lapaxes reach the village, all except one. There was a single Lapax who seemed enthralled with something which prevented his progress. The Lapax's eyes were unfocused and drifted without purpose around their sockets. Lepex's tentacled mouth would twitch randomly out at odd intervals. Diego watched as the Lepex came from cover for several long moments before creeping forward. When Diego was within striking distance, he slipped his heavy rifle from his back and pulled it to his shoulder. He dialed in the selector for full blast with minimum divergence and sighted down the barrel, ignoring the scope. He lined up the weapon with the creature's eye and squeezed the trigger with an exhale. The Lepax's head bulged at odd angles, and the unconstrained energy tore through its inside of its skull. The beast toppled backwards as the high momentum particles tore apart the soft tissue inside and baked the brains. As the body hit the forest floor, a grey beanstalk of smoke wafted up into the sky. Diego looked around once to see if any of the monster's compatriots would be attempting revenge, but Diego found himself alone behind enemy lines. He swung his rifle back over his shoulder and hustled to the fallen alien. The beast was plainly dead and well beyond the hope of reviving. Diego turned to see if what so caught the monster's attention and found his breath caught in his throat. Lying on the underbrush was Trigg, but something tugged at Diego's mind when he attempted to look at Trigg. Something was reminded of trying to wash dishes with gloves for some reason. 
as the, the mere thought of Trigger becomes slippery and beyond his grasp. When Diego tried to concentrate on Trig, he felt his eyes try and slide over him and refused to lock onto the sight. His mind rebelled when he railroaded his eyes into staring at Trig, when he could see a gently raising and falling of his chest. At least he was alive, Diego thought. Diego shook his head and looked at the ground. His eyes were watering when his nose started running. Diego looked around to make sure no enemies were sneaking up on him, and he whirled his feet forward one at a time. When his foot finally swept forward and contacted Trigg's prostrate form, Diego knelt down and grabbed Trigg's arm. Diego kept his eyes from pointing at Trigg as he lifted Trigg's body into a fireman carry over his shoulder. Diego kept his right arm free to handle weapons and studiously avoid looking at Trigg while marching through the forest. Carrying a person through the underbrush slowed Diego down, but he kept moving and pushed away any thoughts of exhaustion. He willed his feet to keep moving, one after the other. He forced himself not to think about how much further he had to go or how much his back hurt. He ignored the pain creeping up from the arches of his feet and from his knees, he tried, as best he could, to focus on making it through the next step. Then the one after that, and the one after that. Soon enough, sweaty and exhausted and spent, Diego saw the edge of the forest and the shining hull of Lee's ship just beyond. As he broke through the wood's edge, he felt his resolve break as he collapsed to his knees, but caught himself before he fell face-first into the dirt. He rolled drink off of his shoulders and gently as possible, Diego heard footsteps approaching, but was too tired to do anything more than roll onto his back and accept his fate. Diego! A voice called out as Diego stared up at the sky. It was had been a good life, he thought. Whatever happens next? Hours later, Trigg jerked himself awake and stared around the small cabin and found himself in. It took several long moments, but he finally recognized his cabin aboard Lee's ship. How did that happen? His memories came to him as in a rush jumble, and he clasped his hand and his head without conscious thought. Taking several deep breaths, Trigg forced his eyes open and concentrated on the immediate surroundings. The feel of the bed beneath him, the soft breeze in the circulators, and the half-heard creaking of the ship settling. When he felt his body would not betray him, Trigg tossed his leg over the side of the bed and pulled himself into a sitting position. He found his clothes were still on, but his weapons had been removed and placed on the side table. Trigg stood up and plodded to the door. Upon exiting the room, Trigg heard the sound of conversation down the hallway. He followed the sounds of the voices and kept his hands against the wall to steady himself. As he came closer to the conversation, he made out several voices he recognized. Trigg stopped out in the corridor and into a small ship's galley. He looked around and his jaw dropped as he said, Deacon? Deacon looked up at him and said, Yeah, wait, but what's... Uh... Trigg felt his mind trying to split into two again. Lee jumped up and helped Trigg with the chair. Careful, Trigg, he said. Diego found you unconscious and carried you back here. We don't know what happened out there, so no telling how long it'll take you to get back to normal. No, I'm, uh, I'm fine, Trigg said. Except, except Deacon. What are you doing here, Deacon? What are you talking about? Deacon asked. You asked all of us to come and help you teach Jimbo not to screw over customers. Trigg looked around the table. Lee, Cal, Diego, Deacon, Jumbo, and Eddie. Each face showed concern in Trigg's words. I'm... Uh, I'm sorry, Trigg said. His face dropped as he rubbed his eyes. 
The Lepax, it did something. I don't, uh, I don't know what. What do you remember? Cal asked. Jimbo took Eddie's money, but wasn't going to fulfill the contract. I went to see Lee and Cal, and then I got to see Diego. We came here, the Lepax has got the drop on us, and I went out to see if I could slow them down. One of them sneaked up on me and, uh, and then something, something happened. Lee put her hand on Trick's forearm. It's a gay trig, she said. Take your time. Lee looked up at the group around her. I was... I thought it was a memory. I thought it was some kind of psychic attack, making me relive my worst memory. What? Diego said. The Lepax did something. I was... Uh, I was back on Belcor. Trig looked at Deacon. Right before you died, Trig said. Deacon's face went pale and slack. Deacon didn't die on Balcor, Diego said. You and him rescued the Canat family and brought them to the safety. But we never talked about how we did that, Deacon said. That trick said, I'm, I'm having some trouble sorting my memories. One said, I watched you die by an ambush in the cave, but in another, I remember blasting off the planet with you sitting next to me. I remember the Canats being gunned down before you made it out because I was overwhelmed, but in the other... I remember you and I trading cover fire and rescuing all of them. That's crazy, Jaeger said. Those Lepaxes implanted those memories or something. No, Trick said. That's, uh, that doesn't feel right. Deacon turned to Diego and said, He told me this on Balcor, right before there was an ambush in a cave where we were hiding. He called it. There was no way he could have known uh, his, uh, foresight, I guess, ended just after we left the planet and we never talked about it again. I thought it was just the stress of that place. It wasn't, Chick said. This is where I came from. Eddie, can the Lepaxes send people back in time? Is this a thing that they do? Eddie stared at the human mercenaries and found herself shaken by their concern. I, uh, I don't know, Eddie said. We only row rumors and gossip about them. Weird things do happen around them, but time travel. I don't, uh, I don't know. Trig, Cal said, it's been a long day. Maybe those jerks have been messing around in your brain or something. Get some rest and maybe it'll clear up overnight. Trig nodded and began to stand. Lee put an arm under him to help him up. They shambled off down the corridor, leaving as much subdued conversation in the galley. Later that night, Cal found Lee sitting in the ship controls, staring up at the stars. My up sunlight? Cal asked. Lee glanced over her shoulder and a sad little smile and said, just thinking. Carl slumped down into the chair on the flight deck and put his feet up on one of the control panels. About what? Trig, Lee said. After I helped him back to bed, we talked a little more. He, uh, he was very convincing. He completely believes that there were two timelines, one where Deacon died and the other where Deacon lived. I'm sure he was convinced, Carl said. Hallucinations and paranoia seem real enough to their victims. I don't think that's it, Lee said. The way he described it, it's real to him as we are. The way he described Diego spiraling into depression, how our team broke apart, it, uh, sounded real to me, too. Well, everyone knows Deacon and Diego are close. Of course Diego would get depressed if Deacon bought the farm. Cal said, I believe him, Cal. Cal put his feet down and leaned forward. No, honey, no, you can't get pulled into this madness. But if it's true, it's not. But if it is, Cal, Trig really went back in time and changed history. That means I could too. I could save her, Cal. It takes us a long time to get past that, Lee. Don't bring this back up and hang yourself on false hopes, Cal said. 
We're just starting to have a life again. I missed your smile so much over these last two years. Don't risk it again over some crazy mental attack. Cal, Cal, I can save our daughter. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, Chapter 8, written by Alt Cypher. Deacon ran into the galley as crashes and clangs echoed down the corridor. He grabbed a door jam and he rounded the corner into the galley. Deacon arrived just in time to see Camp throw a wild haymaker at Trigg. While Trigg saw it coming, he didn't quite get his head clear and caught the ragged edge of Carl's punch. Trigg's lips were swollen and his nose leaked a thin trickle of blood. Carl's knuckles were bloody and one of his eyes was turning a sickening shade of purple, his face a mask of rage and pain. Carl dove at Trigg, knocking pans and balls from the storage shelves around them. Deacon had no more taken the scene in as he raced forward, trying to separate the fighters. Carl's elbow caught him in the ear as Carl pulled back for another pop of Trigg's face, and Carl half turned to see who had entered the fray. Out of the corner of his eye, Deacon saw Jimbo dart into the room as well. Deacon and Jimbo each took a combatant and struggled to pull them apart. Let me go! Cal screamed in Deacon's ear as he tried to free himself from Deacon's grasp. His arms flailed and his legs searched for purchase, but Deacon held him fast. I'll kill that son of a bitch, you hear me? Get him! His voice rang out against the metal hull of the ship. Let him go, Trick shouted around Jimbo's bulk. He wants this so bad, let him go. I'll tear your freaking head off, Carl screamed. What the hell is going on? Diego took it to the store, marveling at the scene in the galley. There was something about his voice that caught everyone's attention. Carl stopped struggling against Deacon and Trick stood still behind Jimbo. That jerk, Carl said, pointing at Trick, made my wife run into the middle of the night. Bullcrap, Trick said. She's a grown woman and can do what she likes. Carl snapped his head back around at Trick. She'd still be here if you hadn't brought up that fricked-up story. It's true, Trick shouted. It's not a story. Can everybody please calm the hell down and start over at the beginning? Diego's voice carried over the screaming match. Everyone in the room turned to look at him. Last night, Cal said, Lee started believing this bullcrap about Trigg going in back in time, back to Balcor. She started thinking about it, and now she thinks she can save the baby. I thought I'd talk her out of it, but when I woke up this morning, all I found was that note. He pointed to a scrap of paper sitting on the table. Trigg started to reply, but Diego held up his hand to forestall him and then walked over and picked up the note. He unfolded a single crease and read aloud, Dear Cal, I know you don't believe Trigg. I didn't either at first. After we talk, I went to see him. Now I'm more sure than ever. I'm going to go find Lepax and save our daughter. Love, Lee. Diego looked up at Trigg and asked, Is that true? Mostly, Trigg said. She woke me up in the middle of the night. Asked me how I knew I'd really been back in time. Asked me why I was the only one who remembered and the other version of the history. I told her I didn't know, but that I was sure. I know I went back in time, and I know I saved Deacon. I'm as sure as that as I am standing here. Diego walked over to Trigg and gently placed her hand on Trigg's shoulder. I understand, Trigg, Diego said, but isn't there a chance, just a chance, that they made you hallucinate or something? I mean, it seems a lot more likely that they breathe out a steam fart masculine. 
Then they actually sent you back in time. Trigg stared, Diego, in the eyes. Yes, it would seem more likely, Trigg said, but I know what I know. I have two sets of memories in here. He tapped on his temples hard enough to echo them out quietly. I remember going to the memorial you put together for Deacon, and I remember how happy you were to see him step off that shuttle. I remember having to drag your ass out of the bottle a dozen times over the last two years, and I remember that dinner you two held on the first year anniversary of the Balkor mission. Each set of memories is just as real and as valid as the other. I went back, Dee. I know it. Diego searched Trigg's face for any sign of doubt or uncertainty, but found none. Trigg, Diego said, you have to understand how this sounds to us. I do, Trigg said. Believe me, I do. That doesn't bring my wife back, Cal said. She'll be fine, Trigg said. You don't know that, Cal replied. You don't know anything of the sort. For all you know, she's already dead in a ditch. Even if the Lepax could send you back in time, how can you be sure they'll send Lee? Maybe they'll just shoot her. Maybe they'll just take her prisoner. She's gone off chasing a dream that could end up with her dead. And it's your fault. I, uh, you're right, Trick said. As he spoke, he seemed to deflate. His shoulders slumped and his head fell to his chest. His voice lost the force that he had enlivened it with only moments ago. I don't know. She asked me about what happened and I told her it would never work. I never thought that she'd run off without backup. So why were you two fighting? Jabba asked. Because I laid him out before he could say a word, Cal said. I started swinging first chance I got. Cal's voice had dulled its edge as well. I'm sorry, Cal, Trick said. I didn't mean for her to... I don't know. I'm... I'm sorry. The planet burned below. Its ruddy glare stained against side a cockpit dull red. Lee looked down at her swollen belly and felt the thickness of her ankles and the cramp in her back. She reached out, slowly, not believing her own eyes, and slid her fingers around the control yoke. Felt like coming home when the stick filled her hands. Lights flashed and messages scrawled across her screens. Lee took a deep breath and flipped the comms back on. She noted the time. Three hours before her life crashed down on top of her. Plenty of time to change the course of history. Her headset was flooded with burst traffic. The enemy was attempting to cut off the retreat. The valiant had been lost, but several escape pods had been launched. There was a request for immediate ground car support near Cal's last known location. Lee looked over the brief tactics display and knew she had made a mistake the last time when she came here. Stella Duchess to Ops, Lee said into the microphone. Go ahead, Duchess, came the reply over the radio. Moving to retrieve escape pods, please dispatch someone to cover grid for Alpha Red. Lee said... There was a minuscule pause in the radio when she had finished. Say again, Duchess, the ops officer said over the radio. I say again, Lee said, moving to pick up pods, send someone to 4 Alpha Red. For just a moment, Lee let her professionalism slip and said, I'm closer to the pods and Cal needs help immediately. Send Starlight Dragon or Fury Dancer. The reply was much quicker this time, and Ops said, Understood, Duchess. Bring home as many as you can. Dancer will cover Cal. That was my mistake last time, Lee thought. I prioritized Cal, and the stress caused me to lose the baby. I've got to start thinking like a mother. Besides, Aaron is a good pilot, and Cal trusts him. He'll bring Cal back home. End of chapter Children of the Gun, Chapter 11 Written by Old Cipher 
He pulled up around a spinning hulk of a starship and flattened her roll once she cleared it. Scanners were showing intermediate escape spot signals, ephemeral and fleeting, but always there. She throttled the main engines down to nearly nothing and maneuvered on thrusters only. The debris field was too cluttered for any dramatic moves. The ship shuddered as Lee tapered the port lateral thruster. She flattened the engines to keep them alive and eased in behind the escape pod that had only just come clear of the shard of the broken starship. The automated systems tried to help her, but they were soon overwhelmed by the chaos of the spiraling, expanding cloud of dead ship. Lee watched the camera as the cargo hold as she floated her ship forward and enveloped the tiny escape pod. Proximity alarms sounded sporadically, and she would silence them with an off-handed slap. The docking lights rolled over to green as the pod cleared the doors. Lee hit the command seal and the cargo doors and moved off to find her next rescue pod. She kept an eye on the cargo hold as the escape pod was buried to a pressurized section, then popped open, and two wary, scared humans crawled out. Lee rolled the ship over and passed a rotating spar. She flipped on the intercom and said, Sorry, I can't be there to welcome you. Through those doors, the crew quarters, with a bathroom and food if you need it. I'm looking for more escape pods, and this debris field is too dense to trust an autopilot. Before her new passengers could answer, Lee flipped off the intercom, keeping her hyper-focused on navigation of the debris field when what was only thing keeping her from driving herself crazy over Cull. Entering a conversation with the shell-shocked strangers would do nothing to distract her from Cull or prevent her from flying into a dislodged wall, so she ignored them. Only half-conscious of her actions, Lee hit the switch to lock the flight deck so that she wouldn't be disturbed. An hour after starting her search for survivors and two more escape pods later, Lee tried contacting anyone who might be able to find out about Cull had but received nothing back but static. The flotsam surrounding her sparkled with wan starlight from the distant local sun. The scanners had been rendered useless as bits of ship continued to pulverize themselves against each other until they'd been reduced to sensor-jamming haze. The larger pieces of the ship hull continued their silent ballet between the stars. Lee reset her comms to listen for the radio beacons from the escape pods and strained her eyes to watch for the strobe atop each escape pod. Lee caught sight of a blinking light just behind what she thought was the ship's rear quadrant. She tapped the thruster controls and felt the ship nudge around the obstacle. As she got closer and got around the obstruction, something gnawed at the back of her mind. With all the stresses of today, she talked it up to fried nerves and edged her way towards the ship beacon. It then it dawned on her. While Lee could see the blinking light, the radio was silent. Even in this debris field, she should be able to hear the repetitive pinging of the radio beacon at this range. There was always the possibility that the escape pod's radio had been damaged in the attack. But those things were designed to ride through hell with little more than a scuffed paint. Besides, she thought there doesn't seem to be that much damage, just a few scorch marks and some chipped paint. The proximity alarm rang out again, and Lee slapped the mute button without thinking. Then weapons lock alarm screeched through the cockpit, and Lee jerked the controls hard to left. Her hand had made the decision before her conscious mind had even processed the sound. Half of the control board was screaming for attention. With all the clutter surrounding her, Lee had no idea from where the threat originated. All she knew was that she needed to keep moving to be harder to hit. 
Lee spun and flipped the ship as much skilled as she could muster, but she was constrained by the wreckage around her. Trigg was startled away by the tent flap being thrown open. Cal slipped in and pulled the tent shut behind him. You up? Cal asked. I am now, Trigg said. He wiped his hand across his face and tried to remember what day it was. That thing you said yesterday, right after we got you back. About going back in time, Trigg asked. Yeah, Cal said. What about it? Is it true? Did you really go back in time? Trigg sat up and stayed in his sleeping bag. I don't know, he said, but it, uh, it was real. Do you understand that even if the most vivid dreams I've ever had, I could always tell something wasn't right, like, uh, like the universe was at arm's length. Does that make sense? I guess, Carl said. But this thing, Trick said, whatever the Lepax did to me, it was as real as everything I've ever known in my life. I could feel the rocks under my boots and smell the burnt air in my nose. I got hungry, I got tired, I peed, I even had to take a dump. You ever hear of a hallucination or a dream where you pooped? Cal smiled. Poop dreams aren't something I'm really familiar with. Yeah, okay, that's fair, Trick said. But my point is, it's not just a feeling of being real. It's all the little things. The stuff that gets edited out of dreams. My beard grew. I had to fall asleep at my left side because I can't fall asleep in any other position. Weird little things that dreams just skip over. Cal chewed on his lip for a moment. Trick looked at him with a cock on his head. You planning something? Why do you think they sent you to Balcor? It was maybe the worst day of my life, watching Deacon and those kids get killed. That's the only thing I can think of. I've been in plenty other fights and on plenty other planets. The only thing I can think of was Balcor, which was just so awful. Trick said. Yeah, Carl said. Mine too. Trigg raised an eyebrow in question. Worst day of my life, Carl said. The day Lee and the baby got shut up. I never knew why she didn't come for me when I called for extraction. Then they ambushed her while she was bringing in escape pods. I don't think I've ever felt alive since they told me. I'm walking. I'm just doing things, but I'm just going through the motions. Running out of clock until my time is to join them both. Trigg kept quiet and let his friend talk. There were some dark days when I got back home, Carl said. I had a gun in my mouth more than once. Did I ever tell you that? Trigg shook his head no. I'm not exactly proud of it, Carl said. It hasn't happened in a while now. I think I'm past the worst of it. But you want to talk worst day of my life, man. That's it. The day my wife and unborn child got vaped by an alien ambush. So now you wonder if you can go back and change history. Part of me wants to be true, and more than anything in our history of ever. But the cynical part of me says it's a false hope, and wants to hate you for that, Cal said. That's why you came here asking about it. You want to know if I really went back. Yeah, Cal said. All I can tell you is it felt real to me, Trick said. Are you thinking of trying to go back? Thinking about it, yes, Trick said. Carl looked at him in surprise. Trick continued, You're not going to ever sleep well again if you don't try. You always wonder what if, and it'll tear you up inside. If you try to stop you, you'll end up blaming me for their deaths. So I'll help you. It's the safest option. If we do save her, maybe we can shave the ship too, Carl said. We wouldn't have had to take that crappy rental out here to help Eddie and sleep in these nasty tents. That would be nice, Trick said. You remember that stuff the enemy and Balko used? Yeah, some big chemical name. It was a mission I was on when I had to call for extraction, destroying their stockpile. 
If you can go back in time and you can change the past, maybe you could bring some of that stuff here. Grab a couple barrels and keep it handy for when this mission pops up. You know, that stuff's got awful, right? It sets gravel on fire, Carl said. That's why Balko burned. Well, yeah, I was there too, remember? A little bit of that in the Lepax encampment might make them reconsider invading the space, Trick said. Gravel, Cal said. On fire, burning rocks, exploding on contact with water. Turns into hydrochloric and hydrofluoric acid. That crap is super nasty. That's why I only want two barrels, Trick said. Cal stared at him for a moment and said, Ah, I'll see what I can do. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, chapter 12. Written by Alt Cipher. Cal felt a crunch of the dead grass beneath his chest as he leaned forward, back on Balcor. He thought, for his long rifle was propped up in front of him, though not stabilized. He glanced over the top of the scope and saw the facility that he knew to be his target. Look, Diego said from beside Cal. All I'm saying is that gold doesn't let them play games like a fiat currency does. D, Cal whispered, I didn't come halfway across the universe to argue about our newest conspiracy theory. Well, you asked, Diego said. I suppose I did, Cal said. He looked through the scope atop the rifle and scanned the perimeter of the facility. Seven visible gauge, just like the first time he was here. That vehicle parked out front looks like it will cause us trouble, but it'll be set with the whole time, Cal thought. He turned back to Diego and said, I need you to trust me, D. A ghost of confusion passed across Diego's face on hearing that. Uh, sure, Cal? I know you won't believe this, but our mission is about to go tango uniform, Cal said. Get Lee on the comms and have her set down off-grid to Charlie Green right away, no matter what Ops says. Next, have Breshine and his crew dust the whole east side of the complex. Cal, our orders are quick and clean. Ordering an airstrike is neither of those things. Besides, you heard the briefing, the nasty crap that they've got in there. Your order, an airstrike, and all that crap gets out and starts killing. Well, everyone, this is why I want you to trust me. Intel is bad. What else is new? Intel is bad, and the east side of the complex isn't a storage like they said. The east side is a garrison. They've got over a hundred soldiers in there. We start our mission, then they place gets too hot, and we end up running for our lives. Mission failure. Vaping this whole place is the right answer. How do you know all of this? Diego asked. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, Cal said. Call Lee and Bershine. I'm going to see about the alternate route in. When Bershine lights up the east side, we should be able to slip into the west side. Diego searched Cal's face for a moment before nodding. He tapped the radio button on his vest and spoke quickly and quietly into the receiver. Cal looked over the facility through his scope and had found their new route within moments. Okay, Diego said. Lee and Bersheim are on their way. I hope you know what you're doing. Me too, Cal said. He slipped his rifle onto his back and started crawling to his left, keeping his body below the bridge line. Diego grabbed his gear and followed along. The two men made good time considering they moved on their knees and elbows. Ten minutes later, Cal and Diego were crouched behind a small boulder just above the enemy facility. Bershime ETA, 90 seconds, Diego whispered. Cal nodded, not wanting to risk verbal communication. He counted the seconds in his head until he heard the massive screeching boom tear through the sky overhead. 
A dozen spots began glowing blue in the low clouds overhead. The blue spots grew brighter and brighter until they resolved into ships as they burst through the cloud barrier. An alarm rang out through the facility, and Cal could hear the worried shouts of the soldiers inside. Cal and Diego watched as the human fighters dropped out of the sky and began laying waste to the other side of the facility. Orange balls of flame leapt up into the sky as bombs crashed to the surface. They felt the ground beneath them vibrate time and time again as the friendly ordnance bit into the hostile encampment. They smelled spent explosives and burned flesh and carbonized buildings as the weapons did their work. Between the light and the sound, the enemy facility was in chaos. A few stray shots from handheld weapons arced up high towards the human fighters with no damage. Cal waved to Diego forward and they ran towards the facility while the troops inside were distracted with the aerial bombardment. As they rounded the outlying buildings, they ran into one of the guards rushing to his post. The alien and the humans were both so shocked that neither reacted for half a heartbeat. Then Diego whipped out a blade and kept strapped to his thigh and ran it through the alien's throat. The tip of the blade just poked out the far side. The unfortunate alien gave a small gargle as the blood welled up and choked him, then slid to the ground with no further objections. Diego pulled his knife from the fallen enemy, wiped it on his body's uniform, and then nodded to Cull. The humans made their way through the facility, avoiding guards when possible and engaging them when only necessary. They could still hear the sporadic booms from the attack outside and caught shouted orders from terrified aliens now and then. After what seemed like a lifetime of running and hiding, Cal and Diego ran into the storage room. The room was vast, dark and unattended, and stuffed full of barrels. Okay, Cal said. There's a cargo hauler over there to the left. We're going to load up what we can of this and then blow the rest of it up. Diego turned to Carl. What? We're stealing this crap? Some of it, yeah, Carl said. He headed off to find the hauler he knew would be there. Cal, Cal! Diego called after him with no effect. Diego half-jogged to catch up to him. Cal, our mission is to get rid of it. This isn't a shopping spree. Cal paused and spun back to face Diego, he said. Get it loaded as fast as you can. I'll start laying the charges. They found the hauler, and Diego started walking the barrels up the ramp. Cal moved his way through the storage room, placing explosive charges every so often throughout. He came back to Diego once he got more charges, but otherwise worked silently and alone. When Cal had no more charges left, he met up with Diego and the hauler. How many did you get? Cal asked. About a dozen, Diego said. Now can you tell me what's going on? Not yet. Sorry, Carl said. Let's get the hell out of here first. You drive. I'll ride shotgun. Time is set for... Carl glanced down at his watch. Eight minutes, thirty-five seconds. Mark. Diego and Carl climbed up into the cab of the hauler and drove up the ramp out of the storage room. The bombardment had stopped and the two men emerged from the plastered housecape of fire, rubble, and bodies. Diego drove the hauler as fast as he could to put as much distance between them and the rigged storeroom as possible. On the drive out of the facility, the only saw one surviving alien soldier, but Diego ran him over with his much more massive hauler. A little over eight minutes after they left the storeroom, just as they rounded a small hill outside the facility, a deep bass rumble shook the vehicle and Carl turned around just in time to see a fireball erupt from behind them. That's that then, Carl said. 
Get us over to Lee, and let's get the hell out of here. When they reached Lee's ship, Cal jumped out of the hauler and ran up to the boarding ramp. Lee! Cal shouted as he tore through the ship. Cal! Lee's voice rang out of the bulkheads as she raced back to meet him. Cal and Lee fell into each other's arms, just after the galley. Oh, I've missed you, Cal said. You don't know how much. I wasn't sure I should come, but uh, you called for me. I never could refuse you, Lee said, even if it meant... Uh, she trailed off and stared at her belly. Lee, I'm glad you came. If you hadn't, well, I don't think I would have ended well. Lee cocked her head to Cal. What do you mean? Listen, I know you'll think I'm crazy, but I've been sent back in time. By the Lepax, she asked. Cal stopped short. Yes, yes, how did you know? I came back too, Lee said. Don't you remember? You tried to talk me out of it. No, Lee, no. You, um, you died here, on Balcor. Well, above it, really. I came back to save you, Cal said. Oh, Lee said. I remember it differently. We both lived, but I flew down here to rescue you after your mission went bad. I was so stressed about it, I lost the baby. I had the Lebec send me back, and I was planning on not coming to the surface. I remember calling for you after the mission went bad, and you sent someone else while you went to rescue escape pods. One, how the ships ambushed you and blew you up. I came back to save you. Guys, Diego's voice echoed up from the cargo hold. Little help. Oh, right, Cal said. Look, I've got to help D real quick. Get ready to take off. We can talk about this, uh... We have time now. All the time in the world. Cal felt a smile all the way into his soul. End of chapter. Children of the Gun, Chapter 13. Final. Written by Alt Cipher. Lee closed the door behind her and set the lock. She turned down the corridor and joined the others in the galley. Trigg looked up when she walked in. So, Trigg whispered, can you tell us now? Lee said in a full voice, you don't have to whisper, the girl sleeps like a rock. She's made it through blast a few times. Getting her to sleep is the problem, but once she's out, that's it. Oh, Trigg said, no longer whispering. Okay, can you tell us, finally, what's so damned important that you have to drag a two-year-old on a tactical mission? Carl said, I don't expect any of you to believe us, but this is the second time we've been here. Why wouldn't I believe you? Jimbo asked. This isn't a restricted planet, so you've been here before. Who cares? No, Lee said, not just this planet, this mission, all of us, Cal, B, Trig, Jimbo, Diego, and Deacon, we've all been through this mission at least once before. You're not making any sense, Diego said. Deacon laid his hand on Diego's arm to quiet him. Cal said, this enemy, the Lepax, has some kind of time travel powers or something. At first, or I guess, I, it was last time we were here, Trigg got caught by one. He went back in time and rescued Deacon from Balcor. He told us that in his original timeline, Deacon had died of Balcor, but after the Lepax had sent him back, he was able to change history, and now Deacon is here with us. In my timeline, Lee said, I had lost Bridget when I was pregnant with her. At Balcor, the stress of the mission and rescuing Cal made me miscarry, so I went out to find a Lepex to send me back once I heard Trigg's story. In my timeline, though, Cal said, Lee never made it back from Balcor, so I went to find a Lepex to send me back after I heard Trigg's story. Trigg rubbed his temples. 
This is a mess, he said. Time travel, and they were nice enough to send you back to fix the one thing that hurt you the most. That doesn't make sense. We've had two years to think about it, Carl said, looking at Lee. We still don't know why it was always Balcor. Maybe there's something about the battle that makes it special. Maybe they always send you back to the worst day of your life. Maybe it was just a stupid blind luck. All I know is I got my wife and my child back. I think you just had the bad dream, Jimbo said. It wasn't a dream, Lee snapped at Jimbo, her eyes momentarily full of fire. She caught herself before she lost herself. It wasn't a dream, she said, more and more calmly. It was as real as anything I've ever felt in my life. I have lived through every day since then. It was real. They sent us back in time. Then why are you back here? Diego asked. The whole room looked at him. Seriously, if our lives were such crap before, why did we take this mission this time around? Why didn't we just stay home? First, Cal said, there was no way I was talking Trig out of taking this job after what Jimbo did to Eddie. That seems to be the constant in all of the timelines. Great, Trig said. Jimbo's an arsehole, and in all possible universes. Jimbo shot him a look, but Cal pressed forward before anyone could divert the conversation. Second, Cal said, we, well, wanted to thank them. They set our lives right, and yours too, though none of you remember it. Still seems dangerous to bring a toddler along, Trig said. There was, uh... Lee started, but was cut short by a rumbling explosion outside the ship. They felt the ground quake beneath them and heard the dirt raining down on top of the hull. Everyone in the galley bolted for the command deck, except for Cal, who had made a beeline for his daughter's room. On the command deck, Lee brought up sensors, displays in the blink of an eye. She activated it in time to see a giant bolt of energy stab down from the cloudless sky and hit the field just a few hundred meters aft of where the ship was parked. Another deep base wall of sound washed over the ship and more dirt and rocks hailed down. What the hell is this? Trigg shouted. Orbital bombardment, Lee said. But they're, uh, they're not actually targeting us. Both blasts were exactly, uh, 293 meters away, one fore and one aft. It's a message, Deegan said. The comms light flashed. Glee glanced at the trick before he opening the channel. Go ahead, she said. All that came through the speakers was a ball of garbled static. The crew looked at each other, but no one had any ideas. The monitor in front of Lee sprang to life, and a line of text scrolled across the screen. Who are you? The text on the monitor sat waiting. Trig leaned into the microphone and said, Hello, can you understand me? Another burst of static tore through the speakers and the same line of text crossed the monitor. Who are you? This is the private vessel Stella Duchess. To whom are we speaking? Lee said into the comms microphone. Static crossed the speakers then. We are the Lepax. Lee looked at Trigg for instructions, but he only shrugged. Before he could respond, another squeal of static came over the speakers, and more text popped up on the screen. You have violated time. Surrender for interrogation and destruction. Well, crap, Jimbo said. What does that mean? Deacon asked. Violated time, and on what authority would we surrender to you? There was a moment pause before another orbital blast tore through the ground outside the ship. This time, the ship rocked with the blast, and everyone had to grab something to keep from being knocked over. 
That one was closer, he said. A hundred and twenty meters starboard. I think that's their answer to the authority. We don't know what you mean by violated time, Driggs said in the comms deck. The squeal, our static then, multiple incidents of temporal abnormalities have been tracked to your location. Surrender now. Okay, just stop shooting. He tapped the mute button and turned to his crew. I don't think they're in the mood to talk. Can we get out of here? Lee said, they've got a target lock on us already. Taking off is too slow. I doubt we get more than a dozen meters before they vaporize us. Seems pretty clear that they've got us outgunned, Diego said. Trigg unmuted the comments said, Do we get a trial if you are interrogating us? It seems like we should get a lawyer and do it right. As soon as he was finished, he hit the mute button. I don't know if I can stall them for long. We need a plan. The speaker erupted with static and a new message on the screen read, There'll be no trial. Temporal abnormalities will be evaluated and destroyed. Interrogation will determine extent of contamination. Oh, that doesn't sound good, Jimbo said as he finished reading. Any ideas? He said. Trigg unmuted the comms and said, What are these temporal abnormalities you keep talking about? Static, and then, Your understanding is not necessary, only your surrender. Trigg said, You're telling us to surrender, and then you're going to ken us, not seeing the upside for us here. Static, then. Only temporal abnormalities will be destroyed. Remainder will be released after temporal decontamination. Deacon drew a finger across his throat and Trigg muted the line. There's no telling which one of us is this abnormality that they keep talking about, Deacon said. But from the stories that Lee and Cal have told us, I wasn't originally here. As best as we can tell, Lee said. If I surrender, they should let the rest of you go, Deacon said. No, Deacon, Diego said. Deacon turned and looked into Diego's eyes. D, Deacon said, if what they say is true, I got two extra years with you. That's worth more than anything to me. I'd gladly give up my life to save you and the rest of them. No, Deacon. No, this is not fair. How the hell do they know who the abnormality is? What gives them the right to judge what's supposed to be true? Diego said. No, it's not fair, Diego said. But that's life. Doesn't matter, Lee said. Remember, Bridget wasn't in the original timeline either. That's why I went back, and there's no freaking way I'm giving up my baby. See, Diego said, there is no way she's giving up a kid, so there's no need for you to do some big noble sacrifice. If that's true, Trick said, about Bridget being one of those abnormalities, then they'll be coming for her. They looked at each other and realized what the situation was. They're not taking my kid, he said. The finality in her voice forestalled any arguments. Carl's voice crackled in through the speakers above them. There might be another option. Jimbo jumped when he heard Carl's voice. He looked sheepish and said, I forgot he was here. When I went back, Trig, the Trig from the other timeline, wanted me to grab a bunch of that stuff from Balcor. We've got 14 drums of it in the cargo hold. There's got to be nearly 5,000 liters of the stuff. Pressurized too. When those things pop, they'll make a hell of a mess. And we send the ship up on autopilot, Trigg asked. We'll tell them we surrender and that we're coming up. Maybe, he said, as long as they don't direct it. If they wanted it to another bay or give commands en route, it'll be obvious that no one's at the helm. Can you rig a remote from the ground, Trigg asked. Not with the materials I have on hand and not quickly, Lee said. It's still me, Deacon said. 
Will you stop trying to sacrifice yourself? Diego said. We can find another solution. The speaker sparked out. A mass of static and the monitor was at red. No more delay. Surrender now or your entire ship will be destroyed. You have ten seconds. Trig looked at Deacon, who nodded. Trig unmuted the comms and said, We surrender. Give us a moment and we'll come up for interrogations. Static then followed. Launch slowly. Follow attached flight path. Deviate and you will be destroyed. Trig said, Understood. We just have to secure for launch. It just takes a few minutes. Trig cut the microphone and said, Evacuate the ship, Cal. Get Bridget and get as much as you can carry. Deacon, get any last-minute flight instructions from Lee. Jimbo, come with me. We're going to rig the cargo bay to explode. Deacon moved to the side to allow everyone else off the flight deck. Diego stood silently beside him. You know why I have to do this, right? Deacon asked Diego. Yeah, Diego said finally, but I don't have to like it. At least we get to say goodbye, Deacon said. Trig tossed Jimbo a detonator as they scrambled through the bay. Set them for remote detonation. We'll give Deacon the controller. Make sure you put some explosives on the outer hull as well. We want to spread this as far and wide. A handful of minutes later found the remaining crew huddled behind a fallen tree some distance from the ship. They watched the engines light up and flare as the ship rose up into the sky. Diego stared blankly across the field, his face slack and void of emotion. We'll wait here until it's over, Trick said. He kept his voice low, reverent and respectful. The heat from the engine should have covered us sneaking off the ship, he said. Will he hurt? Diego said. No, Trick said. I don't think so. We stuffed that with explosive and that nasty crap from Balcor. He won't feel the thing. Although, their ship is going to be burning in space for a while. Why did they even come here in the first place? Jimbo asked. There's nothing here but forests and Eddie's people. It's not on the way to anywhere, and that doesn't make sense. Had to, Bridget said from the mother's arms. Everyone turned to look at her. Funny-faced man said that they had to come here, to meet us. The color drained from Carl's face as he looked back at the tree. Overhead, a new star was born as the Labak ship burst into flames and it fell deeper into the atmosphere. End of chapter and end of story. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.